Right now, Bet365 are offering a wide range of markets, including first, last, or anytime goal scorers. With over 45 million members, it's the world's favourite online betting company. We've got wall-to-wall Premier League football, with games being played nearly every day, and with Bet365 Bet Builder, you can combine match results, players to score, number of goals and more to create your own personalised bet. And if you can't watch all the games live, with Bet365's Match Live feature, you can follow every moment through live graphics and text. Bet365 is the world's favourite online sport betting company. The app can be downloaded from Google Play and Apple App Store. Over 18s only. Please gamble responsibly. Hello and welcome to The View from the Lane, our Tottenham Hotspur podcast from The Athletic. My name is Jack Pitbrook and I'm joined again today by James Moore and Charlie Eccleshare. It's been a weekend off for Tottenham and it means they go into their next game on Thursday with Sheffield United with a little bit of rest behind them. Uh, Charlie, has Spurs got all the momentum now? Some of the momentum. They've certainly got more momentum than Sheffield United who uh, have lost all of the momentum that they'd built up before the lockdown. Can I, can I just say as well with that, I'm very rarely right about things, but I did cite Sheffield United as being the kind of club I thought Tottenham would have an advantage over because of the intensity of playing twice in a week. And I, I said Sheffield United might not be used to that necessarily. It was pointed out that Sheffield United are used to playing loads of games in a week in the championship, but I feel like this is slightly different and it is cer- certainly at a higher level. Um, but yeah, I mean, but is it... I don't know, is it a good time to be playing Sheffield United because they're out of form? Or if you're a Spurs fan, James, are you paranoid that it means, oh, they must be due a win at some point? You'd say, yeah, it probably is a pretty good time to play them. They were they were dreadful against Newcastle, or at least once they'd gone a man down, they just seemed to completely lose it. Um, I didn't see the Manchester United game, but it sounded like they were a bit of a shambles in that one as well. Uh, and I, I'm told they played quite a lot better against Arsenal on Sunday in the FA Cup, but obviously they still lost, and to Arsenal, so it must have been pretty dreadful. Um, so yeah, that, that kind of the weather-worn Spurs fan in me it, it is slightly fearful that this will be the the, the day that they, they turn a corner, but I mean, it, 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 Spurs should certainly be motivated to go there and put them on the back foot early on I'd say but let's uh, let's see if it actually happens and of course Sheffield United are one of those teams who I think at their best you know rely on the the energy of the crowd and the the power that gives them and do you suspect James that having not played in front of a crowd that's the reason why they haven't won any any of their four games so far because they can't make that adjustment to the new reality yeah maybe I mean I think if you look at of all the games that Spurs had left, those last nine games, this would be the one where you feel like that is a factor that's that swung in Spurs' favour the most. I mean, the one that would be the other the other way around would be the Arsenal home game, I guess. Um, it certainly feels a less daunting prospect than it would have done before lockdown. Going to Bramall Lane, you know, with a full crowd, possibly with them having had some better results in recent weeks. I, I, clearly, it, it feels like a less terrifying. Uh, fixture um, I think you're probably right that they'll, they'll be one of those teams that will vibe off the crowd a bit more uh, the other club I'd probably say that about would be Liverpool actually um, and they sort of having actually had a wobble before lockdown they didn't look great against Everton and obviously they, they smashed Palace and won the league so I doubt they're too worried about it but 
it's quite a good test of your theory, I think, this, this fixture, Jack, because Spurs really do need to win. Uh, and, they're, and they're one of these so-called elite teams that you think will be sort of uh, impervious to that. So it'll be interesting to see whether that is the case. But it's not a fixture that I would have seen Spurs winning before lockdown, let's put it that way. Well, I guess Arsenal, in a way, are, I mean, there are so many other factors that it's not a controlled experiment as such, but uh, Arsenal lost to Sheffield United uh, with a crowd and beat them without a crowd. And and, I, and it did fit. I mean, it was yesterday that was an FA Cup tie that, you know, it obviously was extremely different to, to the occasion that it would have been. With almost everyone fit now, Tottenham have got the benefit of being able to put in Winks, Lamella, Bergwijn, maybe even Sessegnon and Dombele, who we'll touch on later. Um Charlie Spurs can can now rotate their squads to in a in a way which they could never have done back in January, February, March. So, would you expect to see any changes, or would you expect to see the same team that won their last game? It's a slightly weird one, isn't it? Because they've had a really long break now. They'll have had nine days between the West Ham game and this game. Um, so. There won't be any players who need a rest as such, I think, for this match, but it's doing it anticipation of the following week where you've got games Monday, Thursday, Sunday. So it, it, it's a fine balance, um, you know, thinking that far ahead, or do you just think finally got a bit of momentum having, you know, picked up four points from the first two games? Do you keep it pretty similar? I mean, Jose traditionally hasn't been a huge one for rotation, uh, you know, when, when he's got a side that's doing well. And, you know, when he started at Tottenham and the results were good, his team was was very settled. Um, I don't think so. I don't think there'll be loads of changes. I think maybe a couple, um, but I wouldn't anticipate many more than that. But certainly, as you say, just having those options is really, really nice. And, and Mourinho has talked about that uh, and, you know, how different that that is from from that period that we've spoken about a lot where it was, was it Delhi playing up front or Lucas, Lamella was, you know, <laughs> having to play when he wasn't really fit. So, yeah, just having a more or less a full squad to choose from is, is a huge bonus for this sort of game. And it means that whoever's coming off the bench uh, will be pretty top quality and, and that could make a really big difference as well it's going to be really interesting to see that next week isn't it with those three games how uh, he rejigs his pack during the course of that because that's going to be the section that really makes or breaks Spurs run like I have to say like you know there's not much point in trying to predict what's going to happen over this unprecedented period I can't help but feel like if only Spurs hadn't conceded that late penalty to United they would still be in a much stronger position in terms of chasing for fifth place than they are at the moment. Because now, whenever you look at the table, you know, Spurs are currently seven points behind Wolves, admittedly with a game per hand. But realistically, they need, what, two out of United, Wolves, Chelsea and Leicester to fall away. And I think, you know, they might get lucky with one of them, but I just feel like they need too many things to happen to to actually end up in fifth place. Am I being pessimistic or... Charlie, do you see a way through? Well, I don't. I mean, Wolves is the one. I, I, I tend to do this. I tend to anticipate that. I guess, like in the way that Leicester have haven't been able to maintain that early season form, I keep thinking Wolves will drop off. Um, they are just really, really good sides. So, like coming back from the lockdown, my focus was on United because I thought Spurs would have more than Sheffield United. Uh, so, so yeah, I mean, Manchester United was United. I thought they'd have more than Sheffield United. And I wasn't factoring in Wolves so much, but they do keep winning. That that said, I, I think they will drop points. 
I mean, it's been tantalizingly within reach all season. It just keep, but whenever they get close, like that Chelsea game before Christmas, when we you know, thought they would win and that would have got them fourth, they lost and were suddenly six points behind. They they are still in it, but United worry me as well because they actually look like they've got it together a little bit. The break came at the perfect time for Wolves, I think, didn't it? That, uh, you could, I mean, they haven't got a massive squad, and the and the the Europa League was. Yeah, it takes Clearly, going to become a, yeah, it's going to it's going to become a big factor in their matches, and the fact that they had a massive break to kind of refresh and kind of get to grips with things, and then the Europa League and the Premier League have been kind of separated into two separate sort of mini seasons now. They can kind of disregard the Europa League for the time being and focus on trying to get into the Champions League. Then wh- whatever happens there happens, and then they can kind of regroup and then go again for the Europa League uh, quarterfinals or whatever it is. So it's it's really worked in their favour. I, I mean, you would be absolutely delighted if you were a Wolves fan and the way that's worked out. I mean, clearly, you know, the whole situation is bad and no one wanted this. But like from a footballing perspective, I think it's worked out really well for Wolves. They should be delighted with the way it's worked out. Premier League football is back underway. And right now we're offering a 30-day free trial to The Athletic for a limited time only. Go to theathletic.com forward slash Spurs pod to sign up and enjoy the best football writing anywhere just as the Premier League reaches its conclusion. James, at the very top of the table, obviously Liverpool have now won the league after City lost at Stamford Bridge last week. Do you feel any sense as a Spurs fan that this kind of, you know, breaking of the City hegemony at the top of the table and this team coming from, you know, a few years in the doldrums to winning it, do you feel at all like this should have been Tottenham, what Liverpool have just done? Yeah, I kind of find it hard to, to, to go quite that far, but you, I can certainly see how there there are parallels to be drawn between Liverpool's quote-unquote journey and, and that of Tottenham over the last decade up to, say, two years ago. Um, you know, Spurs finished above Liverpool, I think it was sort of eight, eight of ten seasons maybe, yeah. uh, the previous ten seasons prior to this one. Uh, and we you know, kind of developed a bit of a habit of signing players that Liverpool wanted to sign Perhaps players that don't sound particularly glamorous now, like Clint Dempsey and Gilfie Sigurdsson, but those were the players. Or Deli Ali, Deli Ali as well. Yeah, that's true. Those are the players that, that those two clubs are trying to sign. You know, five six years ago. And ironically, now I guess you could say if if Liverpool had been successful in signing Dempsey, it would have meant Henderson going to Fulham, and the whole history could have been completely different. Who knows? It is. It's kind of frustrating to think that the, the Spurs were so demonstrably better than Liverpool in more or less every sense up to, say, two years ago, maybe slightly longer. I guess halfway through that season, certainly you would have said that. I mean, I, I know in the piece you've written, you talked about the um, the, the 4-1 at Wembley where uh, Spurs absolutely wiped the floor with Liverpool. But Liverpool's response to that game was to, to, to just go out in the next transfer window and do what they needed to do to sign Van Dijk. And obviously they went out and spent £75 million on him before the window had even opened. Uh, and he, can, you know, he helped them into the Champions League final that season. And then in the summer, they've gone out again and bought in Allison, and then clearly he's helped them win the Champions League in the following season. And then the season after that, they've won the Premier League. So just just going out and spending what needed to be spent to buy the players they wanted to sign, I, I, like top top. I mean, you know, Van Dijk wasn't a established sort of elite level player, but I think everyone knew by that stage he was a, a top Premier League defender, and he was what they needed and wanted. Um, and it, we should also kind of factor in that they did sell Coutinho. I mean, they kind of sort of sacrificed Coutinho in a way to bring in the players that they needed to do. And you do wonder whether 
perhaps had Spurs sold Ericsson or even Dele Alli maybe at that point and sort of rejigged things and brought in the players he needed to bring in in other areas. Uh, things could have been quite different. But I did when you tweeted your piece the other day, I did notice a, a, quite an interesting co- comment from uh, Adam Nathan, who, who makes quite a few interesting comments on Twitter. Um, and he said that Spurs didn't have as obvious a weakness in their team in any one area, which, uh, which actually I think is kind of true. I don't think you could look at that Spurs team from 2017-18 and say, this is the one player that definitely needs to be replaced. I mean, I suppose you could say they had just sold Walker and they could have brought in a better right back. But I don't think at that point that was as blindingly obvious. At the time, I did I did have that opinion, I think. Like, I remember... Th- but we also know that Spurs did want either a winger or a creative midfielder. Like, if you look at the players that Spurs really wanted and failed to get in the sort of 2016-17-18 period they were generally one of those two types of players. So the big names are Grealish, Isco, Mane, Zaha, Ross Barkley, really. And I think that's re- that is fundamentally the, the difference between Liverpool and Tottenham is that Liverpool, you know, Liverpool built a good team, needed needed to take the, the next step. So they bought the best centre-back available, the best goalkeeper available, both of them perfect for the way Liverpool played. Spurs built a very good team. And then... They kind of like had a vague sense of what they needed, but they couldn't. They couldn't go out and get the players to improve, and they never made. They they could never make that final step that Liverpool could. And Charlie, you've written about this, like you know, players that Spurs tried and failed to get. Is there anyone who stands out from that period who could have been their equivalent of Van Dijk or Allison? Well, Van Dijk himself. Uh, this is interesting. In 2015, and it's not. So speaking to people, you know from around at the club around that time um you know it's not held up as like a big error because basically in 2015 they it was Alderweireld or Van Dyke who they wanted to get and they went for Alderweireld and he's been obviously a really really good signing so you know but it is funny to think that it could have been Van Dyke he was next down on their list essentially and and at that time Van Dyke still hadn't played in the Premier League so it was seen as a bit of a you know a bit of a risk because you never know how they're going to adapt obviously he's gone on to do what uh he's done Sadio Mane was someone in 2016 who they wanted and 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 that's the summer you know just touching on what you were saying there Jack about what they wanted I mean they really wanted a wide forward Uh, they went in for Mane they were priced out essentially Zaha they wanted and didn't bid any anything like high enough um and they got Sissoko who has been a really good signing for them but at that time was someone who could play as an attacking midfielder or out wide and obviously has evolved into more of a a deep-lying central midfielder but yeah you look at I mean that piece stretches all the way back to Rivaldo in 2002 and you know obviously it's it's any, any club has all those near misses but it's interesting as well that even in that period they wanted, I mean, other guys as well who they tracked were people like Martial and Bappe, um, you know, because every, you, you do your due diligence and then you work out what's feasible. Martial was someone who was thought to be a bit more feasible, but then United came in, you know, and this is a bit of a recurring theme. United came in and, and made this ridiculous offer for him in that summer of 2015. So he didn't go, but I think what was required and, uh, and this is the, the key thing was a sale like Coutinho was having the nerve to make that kind of sale. Um, and Spurs never really did that. I know Kyle Walker went, um, 
but they didn't do that. You know, Coutinho went for like what, 140 million. I mean, an extraordinary amount of money. And, and at the time, that was a big risk because people were saying, well, look, Liverpool are small time. It's Torres, it's Xabi Alonso all over again. They're just a stopping off point to something bigger. So it really takes nerve uh, to sell one of your best players like that. But if you are, certainly if you're a club like Tottenham, you're not going to just go out and spend silly money. If you're going to go and spend big, you're going to do it if you've brought that money in. And and I think that's what really needed to happen was that they, you know, we've talked about this so much about that need to refresh. And that's what Liverpool did. You know, they, with that Coutinho money, they were able to go out and buy those players. I suppose the difference is that Liverpool had changed system and, and brought in Mane and Salah and, and kind of made Firmino the false nine. And Coutinho didn't really fit into the midfield in the same way that he had done before as a number 10. They, it was kind of effectively surplus to requirements due to the way they changed the system. So uh, that hadn't happened at Spurs at that point. You do wonder whether it might happen to, to Dali Ali further down the line, maybe, who knows. But I, it, I don't think at that point it, it was obvious that you would, you know, place place on as a wide forward and bring in another wide forward and then and then sell Ericsson or sell Deli Ali for 150 million pounds. I think that would have seemed like a ludicrous idea, and I'm not sure it necessarily would have been would have been a good one, even with the benefit of hindsight. I think it's fair to say that if I mean with hindsight, it's you can say well. If Spurs had sold Deli Ali for to Man United for 100 million in 2017, they could have used that money to refresh the squad. In retrospect, I think if Spurs had tried to sell Deli Ali at that point, people would have said, "Ah, oh, Spurs selling club, you know, you'll never be more than a destination club." Um, so it's very it's difficult to unpick. But I certainly I do feel like I mean, whatever Spurs could have done, or whatever room for manoeuvre they might have had in terms of salaries and sales, and and all the stuff that we picked backwards through. I definitely feel that there is like a broad sense that a moment was missed to, you know, uh, to keep the team improving in a way which Spurs ultimately couldn't do given the stadium build. There was no, and this is something that kind of annoyed me when I published this piece is that I had quite a few people really like unhelpfully quote, t- quote tweeting me and saying, well, actually it's because Liverpool have more money than Tottenham. Like I know, like I know that Liverpool have more money than Tottenham. Like this is the whole point is that, Liverpool, you know, Spurs had to build themselves a new stadium and that meant they couldn't afford to keep throwing money at the transfer market all the time. And that's why they didn't sign anybody at all in 2018. Whereas Liverpool, of course, make a lot more money than Tottenham. They're a massive commercial giant. They're, you know, huge sponsorship deals and everything. That you know, they're, they're not building a new stadium, although they have been redeveloping Anfield, which, of course, is much cheaper. Um, and that has allowed them to take, you know, to spend the buy, I think, what, the most offensive, expensive defender of all time, the most expensive goalkeeper of all time, the massive salaries that these guys are all on. The And that is how they've made the difference. So of course, money is a factor. But I just think that... It's maybe Spurs could have done things slightly differently, and if they had, then Spurs would have done better. James, do you blame Daniel Levy for any of this, or do you? You're, you uh, seem to be quite Levy sympathetic. I mean, I think I, th- I think the timing was kind of a bit unfortunate for Spurs, um, in that the team peaked before the stadium move, uh, and then was in need of maybe not a full rebuild, but certainly strengthening in that kind of 18-month, two-year period beforehand. And that that obviously didn't happen, as we now know. But if the team had peaked just up, you know, if they'd had a season like they had in 15-16, where they sort of defied expectations and were in the title race and were one of the best young teams in Europe and everyone was really excited about them, if that had happened 
immediately after they've moved into the stadium, you can kind of see uh, a pathway there for them to become like maybe champions or European champions or whatever. Uh, but unfortunately, that team peaked a little bit too soon. And I think Pochettino spoke about that a few times, that they had kind of achieved their objectives slightly ahead of schedule. And I don't know, it always seemed like he, he always kind of, kind of seemed to be quite sort of cautious about that. And I do wonder if that was like, with hindsight, whether that was the reason that he was always sort of a bit, he was always at pain to point out that they had kind of peaked ahead of schedule and without actually saying that that might be a bad thing. But I do wonder now whether he had that in mind that the the timing hadn't quite worked out in their favour. And if that had happened, you know, uh, pandemic notwithstanding, if that had happened in the, the 2019-20, when Spurs were in the new stadium properly for the full season, then uh, things could have been very, very different. But now, obviously, we're going to have a situation where Spurs probably won't feel the benefit of the new stadium for a few years because you don't envisage there being like 60,000 fans in there, certainly not for the first half of this season. And I suspect we, I, I, when we, you know, this is just my theory, but I suspect we're not going to see full stadiums for a while. Uh, so there's two elements of that that are kind of quite unfortunate. Whether or not they could have been a little bit more ambitious in front caution to the wind, I mean, you know, who knows? Some, some of the player wages, without wanting to be too harsh, are, are ludicrous, really. If you think like someone like Ericsson, the wage that he was on up to, I think when he signed his last contract with Spurs, when was that, like 2017, maybe? No, September, October 2016. 2016, okay. So, I mean, he had been on sort of... And this isn't, I think this is probably slightly wrong, but like kind of 30 or 40,000 pounds when, you know, I think there was a point that Jermaine Defoe had gone to Bournemouth and was on like 100,000 pound a week, say, roughly. And Spurs had kind of players like Kane and Eriksen on like half that amount. I think uh, Javier Hernandez was at West Ham at that point for sort of a similar sort of amount, like 100,000 pounds or so. And again, Spurs had like the best striker in the league and Harry Kane on less money. Um, don't quote me on those numbers, but I, I kind of feel they're roughly right. Uh, and you, you just, I mean, I, and you're right to kind of point out that Spurs don't have the money to spend, a, 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 the same money to spend as Liverpool. And I, I certainly don't think Spurs should be looking to ape uh, the way some of those other clubs are run. But you do, you do wonder whether they could have kind of thrown caution to the wind a little bit in that moment when things were going in their favour and they had all the momentum. But, you know, oh, it's too late now, isn't it? Or just, I mean, I think the one when I was doing that piece on the nearly transfers and uh, one, one of the ones that did, um, you know, like I said, Van Dyke, not so much because of Alderweireld, but from speaking to people, the Mane one, he, he, they couldn't, they didn't want to go as high as what Liverpool paid. Uh, I think Liverpool paid 34 million and they paid big wages. But, you know, Spurs that summer spent 28 million on Janssen and Kudu. And I think it's that's one way where you think, uh, Oh God! If we just that—that that is actually quite a lot of money. Well, the, um, the thing—the thing that happened that summer was and that's the Spurs, summer before Spurs, they came Spurs, second. Spurs were sniffing around for Zahar, and I think they—it it was the summer they made this derisory bid for Zahar that yeah, really, really was. annoyed Steve Parish. Um, understandably so. Twelve million pounds, ludicrous. And that was right at the start of the summer. I think possibly just after the Euros, or maybe even during the Euros. And. It, it kind of felt pretty obvious that if Spurs had bid about £30 million for him, they probably would have got him. And they kind of messed around with that the whole summer and then got to the end of the window and ended up spending that money on Sissoko. Now, I, I know in the year 2020, we can look back at Musa Sissoko and say, 
this is a player who has ended up being like a worthwhile player. You know, you might think that £30 million was money well spent in the end because he's helped the team get to the Champions League final or whatever. But for the first two years, that just wasn't money well spent. And you do think like if, if they had signed Zahara instead of Sissoko, and, and again, forget that they're totally different players, you would see them as totally different players now. If they had had Zahara in the squad in 16, 17 and 17, 18, things could have been so, so different. And they probably wouldn't have had to spend any more money to get him. One, one thing, I mean, that's a Soko deal. That thirty million, I think, is slightly skewed because it was paid in what generous instalments because Newcastle were relegated and were quite vulnerable, so they were able to take advantage of that. So it might not have been a light flight deal, but I, I definitely take your point. And and I do think that Janssen and Kudu uh, twenty, I mean, that's a fifty-eight million outlay uh, the summer before. Spurs finished second with 86 points as I think we may have mentioned once or twice before on this podcast but you think and I know it's not it's reductive to say you know had they had this player they would have got four extra points but you think you know just with a window slightly better a window going into that season slightly better than Janssen and Kudu and Sissoko who basically didn't really have a first season he started you know he started very slowly at Spurs you, you do just wonder um and Liverpool they did really nail that Coutinho money, uh, Alisson and, and Van Dijk. And yeah, it, it, I think there is an argument to say it was easier for them. It was glaringly obvious that they were, uh, you know, they needed a keeper and they needed a centre-back. But but also, I think they, they, you know, we've talked about the way Spurs stagnated over time and didn't evolve. I mean, I, I just can't really get my head around Liverpool, their transformation. If you think they were, they were this madcap team under Klopp, not even like... It's it's insane. Like not even just his first season when I think they won five four at Norwich, and you can say yeah, but that was Rogers' players, whatever. Even like his second and to like that Champions League run in uh, twenty eighteen. What was their aggregate score against Roma? It was like seven six or something in a Champions League semi final. Like and now you think of them as the most relentless machine. You know they win games one nil two nil. They're often they don't even look that good and and to do that and change the way just completely transform the way they played is what we talked about you know the Sir Alex Ferguson theory of needing to refresh and and i think we you know spurs had was so effective and then you know they just didn't quite evolve in the same way and it's not easy to do that um but you you just have to be so bold i think and brave and and to be fair you know that's what pochettino he knew by the end and and that's what he wanted to do but obviously it didn't work out I don't know if this is mean to say, but if Spurs had spent forty-seven million on Zaha instead of thirty million on Sissoko and seventeen million on Janssen, or even you know, nine and a half million on Nkudu, according to Wikipedia, uh, they would have won the league that year, wouldn't they? There's just no point in buying players who aren't good enough. I mean, it's easy to say now. I guess the flip side of that is that if you if you went back in time a year or slightly longer and said, okay, well, fine, well, Spurs are going to go out and spend a massive amount of money on one midfield player who. We think has a massive reputation. He's done really, really well in the Champions League, including against Manchester City. His name is Tunki and Dombele. What could possibly go wrong? Yeah, I, mean, that is, I know. That is the flip, I know. Yeah. That's the flip side, right? And we've seen Bergwijn come in for whatever it was, sort of 28, 30 million pounds or whatever it was, which by modern standards isn't really that much money for like a top Premier League club. And that that seems that looks like it's working quite well. So that you know, that is the flip side to that, isn't it? I guess. Harry sponsors The View From The Lane, a podcast brought to you by The Athletic. Harry's was founded by Jeff and Andy, two ordinary guys who were sick and tired of overpriced razors. Their amazing quality blades are now almost half the price of the leading five-blade brand. Harry's trial set includes everything you need for a close, comfortable shave. James, what are you thinking about this? 
So last week you admitted to having had a top knot. I don't know if that has remained uh, into this week. Uh, I actually don't have one at the moment because I'm okay. currently at my parents and I wouldn't want to alarm them. <laughs> but I have, I have booked, I have booked a haircut uh, on Saturday the 11th of July. Uh, so to my knowledge. There is one Tottenham player in history that has had a top knot. Can either Why he's played for Tottenham or subsequently yeah. in his career? He, uh, both, I think, probably. Well, Bale's had a top knot since leaving Spurs Ooh. in 2013. Okay, at Spurs then. Fine. Yeah, okay. At Spurs. At Spurs. That is... Uh... He scored a goal in the Pochettino era. There's a clue. Oh, wow. It wasn't in the 1930s. It wasn't Fazio, was it? No. Is he British or or um, from overseas? <laughs> He's, he is a foreigner, Charlie. It wasn't Soldado, was it? No. It was Nasser Chadley. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I suppose one. so. Did Chadley have a top knot? I hope so, because otherwise this is a really bad... In fairly I think at I'm some point. Found, I'm going to Google... Found, yeah, probably. I'm gonna Google right, NASA Chadley one. top knot. Got one. He's in a he's in a Belgian training top, but I, you know, I think that's fine. Oh yeah, there is one. The first if you Google NASA Chadley top knot, there's one of him in that yellow Spurs away shirt, and then there's another one of him with Pochettino in what looks like the 2015-16 home shirt, where he does have a sort of top knot. Yeah, there you go. Good so quiz. It looks like you're right. Oh, I should have got that. That mm. was good, actually. Yeah, surprisingly good. Because these, these bits can often be terrible. Um, as a listener, you can start shaving with Harry's today by claiming your trial set for £3.95. Support our podcast and get your set delivered to you, including a razor handle, a five-blade cartridge, a foaming shave gel and travel blade cover by going to harrys.com forward slash lane right now. That's harrys.com forward slash lane. Okay, guys. So before we get back into... Uh, Serious discussion. Uh, I think we should have a quiz. So we had some fun the other day with a quiz, um, naming the Spurs eleven that starts against Leipzig. This is a slightly similar idea for a quiz. I've actually, um, so li- listeners, I have not told James and Charlie the content of this quiz to stop them from cheating. Um, so as long as you guys are up for it, I think we should play a game whereby you two, same format as last time, you two have to name the 13 players who have who have scored for Tottenham since Jose Mourinho took over. Oof, some of these are obvious, some of these are not, all competitions, some are obvious, some are not so obvious. Are we going uh, taking it in turns, sudden death? Yeah, so we'll take it in turns. Uh, I'm not sure who gets to go first. Who went first last time? I think it was James. So, is that right? So Charlie gets to go first. Uh, and whoever the first person to say an incorrect answer loses. Okay, so that's like treading on a mine. Um, okay, so I just say a player. Yeah, yeah. Harry Kane. Yes, eight goals under Jose. Uh, Some human. Yep, scored the last goal of the Pochettino era and the first goal of the Mourinho era. Oh, nice. Uh, Deli Alley. Yep. It's got seven goals. Uh, Bergwijn. Yes. Uh, Lucas Moura. Yes. 
Uh, uh, Christian Eriksen. Yes, one of the uh, one, two, three, four, oh, yeah, one of the did. five players to have one goal under Mourinho. That's the free kick at Norwich City. Norwich, yeah. Yeah, His last yeah. goal for the club. Yeah, very good. Um, Toby Alderweire. Yes, scored at, at Villa. Villa Park in February. Six players left. Uh, Sergio. Correct. Yeah. Scored against Olympiacos yeah. and Wolves. Yes. Yeah. Oh yeah. Okay. Lo Yes. Scored against Middlesbrough. Four to go. Oh, um, Sissoko scored against Bournemouth, didn't he? Yes, Sissoko. Sissoko's got two goals. Yeah, he, got, he scored against Burnley as well. Oh, yeah. Three, three players left. Oh, I've got a good one. I've got a good one. Yeah, I've got a good one as well, but I'm trying it's to save turn, it. your turn, so you... Yeah, I know. Just... How, so how many are left? Three. Three. Oh, so I'll go, then James goes, and then it's for the winner, isn't it? Yeah. Um, oh, okay, yeah, I've got one. Uh, Vertonghen. Yes. Uh, that was my second one. choice. That header at Wolves. This is bad now because I have to use my good one now. Yeah. Uh, it's Ryan Sessignon. Yes, yeah, called yeah, Bayern. against Bayern. So that was the one, uh, that was the one I was saving up. Okay, so can I remember this? this big pressure. Other, this is a big, big moment. Okay. Oh. Can I say? Can I say I know who it is? No. Okay. I, I, do you know? Do you know who it is? I'm not allowed to say. <laughs> How does this work? Because if Charlie gets, I don't really know. Obviously, gets more questions. If he yeah. gets it wrong, he loses. If he gets it right, you both win. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um. Oh, uh, Lamella. Correct. God. Scored against, at middle, uh, against Middlesbrough. Middlesbrough in the uh, yeah in the FA in Cup, the FA Cup replay. Like, yeah. That was good. Well done. Well done, both I mean, of you. I think again. that went quite well. Um, yeah. I mean, that's a draw, an honourable. Assuming James, you're not lying. We have to trust that you would have got it. Hello, I'm James Richardson, host of the Totally Football Show, now part of the Athletics Podcast Network. We're going to be here following all the action as the 2020 football season reaches its belated conclusion. And if you're an Athletics subscriber, you can now hear exclusive ad-free versions of our show on the Athletic app. And don't worry, if you're not a subscriber, you can still listen to us for free with the occasional word from our sponsor by searching for The Totally Football Show on Apple, Spotify and all the usual podcast places. The Totally Football Show with me, James Richardson, still totally free and now totally ad-free on The Athletic. Now, uh, someone who's been very much on the minds of uh, Spurs fans everywhere over the last week has been Tanky and Dombele who we discussed briefly in our last podcast um, after Spurs' game against West Ham. And since then, Charlie, uh, you and I published a piece on Ndombele's situation at Spurs, his relationship with Mourinho, his mental state. Uh, tell, us what, tell us what we know now that we didn't know on our last, on our last podcast about Ndombele. It is a difficult situation. It's not 
yeah, look, it, it could that there are a lot of games left this season, and you know maybe he will play in some of them, play well, and re-establish himself. At the moment, the situation is if he doesn't start playing, then he wants to leave, which you know isn't really surprising if you're a player of that's come in for that amount of money and has his ability. You want to be playing, and if you're not, um, you know you're not going to be very happy. Uh, he has expressed to. Mourinho that you know he he's fit to play he's ready to play he's not uh our understanding someone who is especially uh confrontational apparently you know he's a he's a quiet character he doesn't really like um you know questioning why he hasn't been playing and that sort of thing so I don't I don't think it's like that necessarily um but he, you know they have obviously had conversations and he said he's fit he's ready uh, he certainly feels that way uh, there is a sense that the two of them are very, very different from one another and maybe don't really understand each other all that well. And, um, you know, so it's an uneasy, it's a strained relationship. Um, and, you know, then you think about, you know, what's going to happen next. It does depend on, you know, the rest of this season. Uh, and it's it's a difficult one for Tottenham because they've spent so much money on him and getting anything like that back uh, is going to be extremely difficult, especially in this climate. I mean, it probably would have been hard anyway, you know, when someone has a, a season when they don't really play very much, but, you know, especially now. And, and then you're looking, you know, we talked about this a bit, I think, on the last podcast about a loan uh, with an option or an obligation to buy. And, and we know Barcelona are interested, PSG potentially. Uh, PSG obviously more appealing as a selling club in a sense that they've got they've got the money to to spend whereas Barcelona we know are in a pretty difficult financial position and they've you know, they've just had some midfield upheaval because Artur is going to leave so it, it is all um, it's pretty difficult you know it, he he's not playing he wants to be playing he's there, there are suggestions as well from people in the dressing room that uh, you know, maybe he's not working hard enough. So th- there are so many facets to this story, and and I know, you know, it, it's been a subplot that's just been going and going. And there are probably some fans who are tiring of it and just want a resolution one way or another. But I don't think they're necessarily going to get that because it is always going to be a big talking point when you're record signing and someone who's getting you know your top wages and he's same as Harry Kane on uh, around two hundred thousand pounds a week. Uh, isn't playing matches so it is going to run and run uh, until you know he starts playing regularly and just don't know if that's going to happen anytime soon I, I suspect he will get his chance in that run of three games in a week next week and then it's up to him to take it and you know people have been saying well look at Lacelso. he didn't really play early on which is true I mean that was a lot of that was to do with injury but even then when he came back he wasn't really getting in the team so yeah maybe you know there is that example uh, from Dombele to follow so it it just comes down to you know if he keeps working hard and uh you know is able to give Mourinho what he wants but we, we talked about it before like it, it it felt potentially like an uneasy marriage is is Ndombele the kind of player that Mourinho would go out and sign you'd have to think not um so yeah we, we'll, we'll see but there there is a lot to unpack and, and as Jack says in the piece we wrote we uh we, we explain a lot of these issues and try and provide some context around um, a situation that, that there seems to be a new uh, talking point pretty much week on week. James, how are you feeling about it? Do you 
do you, do you feel like there's any sense that amongst Spurs fans sympathies are changing? Because in the course of doing research for this story, I did get a sense that the mood is turning against Ndombele. Like even, you know, one source who I spoke to who who back in March was very sympathetic to Ndombele, um, and you know, said that he didn't agree with Mourinho's treatment of him. Um is now saying, well, you know, I think the writing's on the wall for him. So I do think, I do, my impression is that there is like a move of sympathy against Ndombele. James, do you, do you feel the same way or not? I'm not sure I necessarily agree or disagree with that. But I, I do think like the, the longer it goes on, it, the less likely it feels like, like it's going to work out. I mean, quite often when you get a player who, who comes in from overseas into the Premier League for the first time and it doesn't quite work in, in their first season, what you kind of see towards the end of that first season is a few sort of little little glimpses of what's to come and a few little moments that give you some optimism. But I think within Dumbledore, it, it, I mean, th- those little moments of magic have been there the whole way through, but it, it just feels like, and I mean, obviously, it's hard to judge him on what's happened recently because he hasn't played. Um, but up to, up to the shutdown, it, I mean, it felt like he was regressing, if anything. Um, the fact that he wasn't able to really to, to really complete a match or or to be particularly involved when he was on the pitch um, clearly is not a good sign. I mean, I, I think quite a few people probably thought that the three-month shutdown was going to be an opportunity for him uh, or him and Mourinho to kind of work it out and to to find a way of getting the best out of him in that team. But it doesn't doesn't seem like that's happened. Um, I mean, look, clearly Mourinho is the manager of the football club and part of his job is to get the best out of the players that are at the club. But by the same token, I don't think you can say that it's entirely Mourinho's doing given that we were having a lot of these or all of these problems when Pochettino was the manager in those first few months as well. Um, I mean, I think in an ideal world, what you want to happen is for him to go on loan somewhere to kind of establish himself and find his feet and get his confidence back and then come back. But... I'm not sure that Mourinho is the kind of manager who has that kind of patience. And I, I don't really see him being someone who's going to want to send him out for a year and then bring him back and then kind of work out in the years, to, you know, basically kick, kick, kicking the can down the road for a year and try and come back to the problem in 12 months' time. Clearly, as Charlie said, it's a bad time to be trying to sell a player for, of, of that level because in, in a more favourable market, you're probably looking at, it, it, even having had a bad season, Bob Swears would probably be able to turn a profit. And Levy's got form for doing that with players that haven't worked out. I just feel like in Dombele, because it was his first season in a big league outside of France, there was quite a lot riding on it. I mean, we'll never know, so it's, it's hypothetical, but it's certainly going to be hard now. The more I think about it and the more people I speak to, the more I think he's going to go this year. Um, I just feel that too much has happened in that relationship now. Uh, I don't think I don't think there is a sufficient connection between him and Mourinho. He's not what Mourinho wants. Um, and it, although we wrote in our piece the other day that Barcelona had opened talks for a potential loan move, having had a few more conversations in the last few days, I'm start. I now think that PSG sounds more likely. Um, I think that the fact that PSG could pay, you know, could could buy him outright, and Spurs could get their money back, which is something which Barcelona, you know, have no prospect of doing at all this summer, obviously puts PSG in the driving seat. And Dombele is also great friends with Kylian Mbappe from the first time that he uh the two of them were in the France squad together. Um and Ndombele is, you know, PSG did try to sign him when he was at Lyon and he decided to go to Tottenham, but I'm told that he now thinks he should have stayed in France and gone to PSG instead. You know, he is from from the sort of Paris suburbs after all. 
So I kind of get the impression that that is now the likeliest outcome. Although, of course, you know, it's still only the 29th of June. We've still got plenty of time left in the transfer. Sorry, in this season, even before we get to the next transfer window. And these these deals are always difficult to pin down. Um, but yeah, that, that, that's generally my sense of what's going to happen next. Um, something else I want to touch on before we wrap up is Eric Dyer. Charlie, you've just written a piece about him, which looks at the kind of crossroads he's at now in his Spurs career in the sense that, you know, we don't know if he's going to stay or go. He's just started playing centre-back again. He's doing really well, but he's going to get a ban and, you know, maybe he'll lose his place to Toby. So everything feels like it's slightly up in the air with Dyer. But how do you see the situation? Yeah, I think it's a really interesting one. He So his contract expires next summer and as yet uh, he hasn't had an offer to extend that. Um and there are fears as well that his ban is going to be longer than a couple of games. So it, yeah, it feels like it could we could be witnessing almost the beginning of the end for Dyer. Or given the fact that he has played really well and he started um, Tottenham's last six games, and I, I looked at this the piece. I think it's January 2018 was the last time he did that. And you know he had the appendicitis, and I, I think that is one of these things that we underestimate how much that took out of him. He said he was. You know, constantly getting associated illnesses and feeling weak and it was extremely frustrating were his words um so it feels like he is now you know and all the talk before the start of the resumption of the season was that he looked really sharp in training he looked leaner he looked fitter and i think we saw that against west ham uh, and against united so he he's at a bit of a crossroads and i feel spurs have a decision to make there as well because we've seen them make probably the wrong decision on quite a lot of players with them sticking around for too long you, know, you think Ericsson, you think Danny Rose, um, arguably the manager, Pochettino as well. So it feels like one that's really important to get right. And you could argue, well, you know, is he another one then that they let go and they say, you know, you've, you've been a great servant, but we need to move on. Or is he quite an important link to that past and, um, you know, provide some stability? He's a very important member of the dressing room. He speaks Portuguese fluently, he speaks good Spanish. So, you know, he's he's very central to that and he's a you know he's a really good character he shows a lot of leadership skills uh he gets on with Mourinho uh, Mourinho rates him respects him so yeah I think I feel like Dyer, who's 26 has a big decision and Tottenham have a big decision as well um but it's, I just think it's really good to see him fit and playing well again um but yeah I mean James what's your view on on Dyer? would you would you want him to stay or would or would you think it's time to to start uh evolving to a new a new squad yeah, I would, I would keep him around. He doesn't strike me as the kind of person who's going to cause issues if he's not kind of regularly in the team. So in, in like a worst case scenario, if he did stay and wasn't playing, I don't really see that being an issue. Also, I mean, given he is relatively versatile and you know, we, we've talked before about how he's fared in midfield when he's played uh, in recent months um, and it's not always been particularly favourable, but it is an option. So you can see him at worst as a good squad option and having performed relatively well at centre-back this season, you can see that there might be might be a future for him there. Um, and you're right, I kind of, I don't think, you know, clearly the club and the team needed to move on and, and evolve, but I, I kind of think you can do that too quickly sometimes and I think it would be a mistake to kind of just scrap the whole lot of it and then move on to something completely different. I think it's important to kind of keep a, a sort of a thread running through that. Um and you know, clearly, no one is suggesting that the other end of the pitch that they're going to lose or be attacking players. But I think it would be, I think it would be good. It would be prudent to hold on to someone at the back as well. 
Yeah, I can. I don't. I don't think Spurs should let Dyer go. I think you know there's been too much transition, too much change in the last year or so. They're already losing the Tongan Rose and Eriksson is. I added it up the, up the other day. It's something like 800 combined games for Tottenham or something over the years. I think it'd be madness to let Dyer go on a free um, if they can possibly stop it. And I do think you know his performance. His performances at centre back have been been pretty good. Like I don't don't massively rate him as a midfielder. But he, um, at centre-back in the past for Spurs, has been good, particularly playing in a back three, you know, good sort of three years ago or so. Uh, he was part of a very good Spurs team. So he's he's definitely the kind of player you would rather have in the squad than, you know, playing for somebody else. So it seems to me like a, you know, a no-brainer as to whether or not Spurs should try and keep him. So it kind of comes down to what he wants. Um, and also, Charlie, there's some really interesting stuff in the story about uh, what Dyer's like off the pitch, which I actually haven't haven't really read anywhere else before. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, he's such an interesting character. And, you know, he's studying for a social sciences degree uh, at the Open University. And he did an essay last year on the London riots. Um, and, you know, he, he did this interview with David Lammy, which I'd really recommend um, if you can get hold of it. It's actually, it's from a book, um, A Game of Two Halves by Amy Raphael, where it's a really good idea. And you have um, non-footballers interviewing footballers and they kind of interview each other, to be honest. But it's the idea that, yeah, you get people interviewing their, um, it's called football, famous football fans meet their heroes. Um, yeah, a game of two halves. Famous football fans meet their heroes, and anyway, yeah, he talks about that. And at the interview is fascinating. I mean, Dyer, you know, he's talking about like um, basic income guarantees, um, the laws on marijuana. They, they, him and Lammy cover a lot of ground. Um, but yeah, and so he's he's studying for this degree. He, I mean, we know he's spoken out. I say spoken out about Brexit. He tweeted uh for the people's vote last year but by footballers and sports people's standards that was the equivalent of you know speaking out because most people you know are wary of 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 really doing that and he he says interestingly like his brother says to him like you should use your platform more Uh, you should talk about these kind of issues and and his view is that he he just wants to make sure he's really well informed about things before doing that because obviously you do have quite a big responsibility you know um that you're very influential when you've got his kind of following um but yeah you know a real rich hinterland um that he has and, and i just think that landscape has changed a bit i feel maybe one of the few benefits from lockdown is we have heard from footballers more on you know social issues and that kind of thing marcus rashford um you know is obviously the the big one in that regard but lots of others have have kind of come forward and and talked about that sort of thing so and 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 jack you did a really interesting interview last week as well on that topic um so which i would urge people to read with joe bryan um and and yeah i feel he's kind of at the the vanguard of that almost diet you know and there was him and um jan vertong i think have you know these sorts of conversations about politics and the wider world and um play board games together which i think is great uh, so yeah, Dyer feels like you know a really interesting character, and and I I just feel I hope we're moving away from the stereotypes of footballers, and that it will become much less remarkable. You know that we're talking about someone um, in those terms. So yeah, I th- I think he's a really interesting character, um, and yeah, a good leader by all accounts. And and as James says, you know, f- from speaking to people, they say he's absolutely someone who will just get his head down, won't make trouble if he's not playing. 
So I think a really good person to have around, and and I hope Spurs do keep him. But um, yeah, we'll have to wait and see. I I hope it might be that we have to wait until the end of the season for more clarity on that, because as you know, we forget that we still don't actually know if <laughs> the season will be finished if there is this big second wave and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. It's all uncertain. But yeah, I, I I think he's someone who's very interesting, and and hopefully that comes across in the piece. Yeah, I would uh, completely urge people to read it. It's a really interesting look at um, you know a particularly smart, rounded, thoughtful footballer, whatever you think of him on the pitch. This is obviously our last podcast before the pubs reopen this weekend, which is obviously a big moment in national life. And we were thinking about where people who want to watch Tottenham could do so, having, you know, because obviously you can't go to the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium, which is shut. Uh, So I was emailing around some pubs in North the North London area to find you know where people could go and watch Spurs. Uh, obviously, Spurs are not playing this weekend, but Spurs' next game when the pubs are open is next Monday, the sixth of July, against Everton, and then of course Bournemouth on Thursday the ninth, and then the the North London derby on Sunday the twelfth. So Spurs have got three games in that first week of the pubs being open, and the one place that got back to me when I was sending out these emails is. Uh, a place which I really like, the Clissold Park Tavern, which of course is on, I think we think we probably mentioned it before, it's like on Green Lanes, it uh, used to be the Robinson Crusoe and then had a, a kind of overhaul, I think maybe about four years ago. Uh, and they sent me an email saying, as long as our reading of the government guidelines concerning the display of live sport is correct, we certainly will be showing the football. As well as our existing screens, we are looking to install more so that many of our customers, as possible, will be able to view the screens without having to leave their tables. Uh, so, Charlie, as someone who lives in the you know in the area, this is great news, isn't it? Football on TV in the pub. It is. It's a really nice place. And it's right by Clissold Park, which is a lovely place to be. And it's like really close to Finsbury Park Station. You can, it's closer than you'd think. It's probably like a 10 or so minute walk. Um but yeah, it's it's great news, and I, I'm actually leaving Frinsley Park, so it's kind of bittersweet for me. But um, but don't let that stop you guys. You you, you go and enjoy. <laughs> no, it's, it's it's a great place to watch uh, to watch football. So and last time we were last time I was in Clissold Park a few weeks ago, there was a huge queue outside Clissold Park Tavern of because they were selling like takeaway beer, and Clissold Park itself was absolutely swarming with uh, socially distanced picnickers. Uh, so yeah, it's a really cool place. And they do really good pizzas as well. Uh, they have a pizza oven, I think. Um, so yeah, but if you can, if you can think of anywhere else where it's good to watch Spurs on TV in the sort of northeast London area or elsewhere in London, uh, then let us know and we'll read out some of the best ones on next week's podcast. Otherwise, that is all we've got time for today. Thank you very much for joining us. We will be back um, at some point next week, maybe between the Everton game and the new and the Bournemouth game, but we're not sure exactly when yet. Um, to discuss a very busy week for Tottenham in which, you know, that might be the week where they climb over everyone else up into the top five. Thanks very much to Tom, James and to Charlie and we'll see you next week.